heaven, we thank you that you did send Emmanuel, God in the flesh, to come and be with us. And God, we pray now as we turn to your word that we'll hear clearly from you. We also pray that you would give unique comfort and help to those in Clarksville and Fort Campbell and Nashville and in the surrounding area that have experienced a dark night last night with the tornadoes. Lord, help them to know that there is hope in the morning and that you've never left them nor forsaken them. We ask that you'd be with us as we look at your word, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Find the eighth book in your Old Testament, the book of Ruth. We're starting a new sermon series uh, I'm calling Barley in Bethlehem, and if you notice, the subtitle is The Original Hallmark Christmas Movie. And find the book of Ruth, and I did something, let me, let me set it up this way, I did something fun this week, I didn't get uh, a, a, an instrument I can put on my foot, but I did go on ChatGBT this week, I don't know if you know, that's the thing you can go on, it's artificial intelligence, and I played around a little bit, and I asked it to tell me the plot to a Hallmark Christmas movie, write me a Hallmark Christmas movie, 30 seconds later it spits this out to me. The plot for a movie called A Winter Wish, and it follows the story of Emily, a busy marketing executive who reluctantly returns to her small town for Christmas after receiving a heartfelt letter from her estranged grandmother. When she arrives, she discovers that her grandmother has passed away, but left behind a series of mysterious and heartwarming Christmas wishes for the townspeople. As Emily starts fulfilling her grandmother's wishes, she reconnects with old friends and rediscovers the magic of the holiday season. Along the way, she crosses paths with Ryan, a charming local artisan who has his own reasons to rediscover the joy of Christmas. Together, Emily and Ryan navigate the challenges of completing the wishes while uncovering the town's long-buried secrets. As they work together, sparks fly and they find themselves falling for each other. Ultimately, A Winter Wish is a heartwarming tale of love, forgiveness, and a true spirit of Christmas where a small town and his residents come together to create a holiday miracle. Isn't that crazy how quick that came up with that? And funny enough, it gave me two more plots after that, and let me tell you, they were exactly the same, right? Because we all know that every Hallmark Christmas movie basically shares the same plot, whether we can admit it or not, right? A woman has some sort of situation or circumstance, some loss. She usually has to return to her long-lost hometown. There's an element of the supernatural, maybe the magic of Christmas, they might call it. Two people find each other in an unexpected way and fall in love, and then the story has a happily ever after. And the book of Ruth shares a lot of these features, except it has a much more surprising ending. So before we read chapter 1, fellas... If you want to take your lady out to see a movie, don't do that. Bring her to church over the next three weeks as we look at the very romantic and very suspenseful book of Ruth over the next three weeks. Let's look just at chapter 1, and let's read all of chapter 1, and then we'll continue through this up through Christmas Eve together. The Word of God says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And they 
And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the women... Was, so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughter-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have, you ha have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I, should, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to your people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of God. Ruth is unique for a number of reasons. First, it is one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman. The other one is the book of Esther, right? Absolutely. But it's even more unique in that it's the only one named after a non-Hebrew, right? Ruth, as we just read, was a Moabite from the nation of Moab. But it's also important to note the placement of this book in your Bibles. Historically, it has held two different places in the Old Testament. One is the one that, that you have here in your English Bible. You find it after the book of Judges, 
and before the books of First and Second Samuel. This shows us the historical placement of the book, right? It's in the days of the judges, before the coronation of David as king. And Jewish tradition actually holds that Samuel was likely the author of the book of Ruth, though we aren't directly told who the author is. But, all, but some Jews also placed this in another part of the Hebrew Old Testament, in a group of books called the Writings. And the Writings were sort of a catch-all for everything that wasn't the law, written by Moses, the prophets, which were the prophets, right, and included Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The writings had 11 books in them, most prominently the Psalms, right, but would have included everything from Psalms, Proverbs, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, and in these 11 books, there was a subset of five books, which Ruth was a part of, and these five scrolls each were read at Jewish holidays every year. So in many Jewish Old Testaments, they would have placed Ruth next to Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And funny enough, if you read those five books together, they share a number of shared themes. The purpose of God in suffering, the goodness of marital love, and four out of the five of those scrolls have a female main character. Ruth, funny enough, was read during the Jewish festival of weeks at the time of the harvest, a time we would know as Pentecost. That would have been when the Jews would have read through the book of Ruth. So this book is both history, we know that from its placement in our English Bibles, with a deep theological message for its first readers and for us today. Ruth is not simply a short story It is a masterpiece in storytelling with a divine message throughout. Especially when read in Hebrew, friends, there's a lot of intricacies in this book that sometimes we miss reading it in English. One commentator said that what the Mona Lisa is to painting, Ruth is to literature. And so as we dive into chapter 1, there are four movements that open the story. Four movements of Ruth chapter 1. Let's look at the first one. We see that the story opens with dark days. The story opens with dark days. Notice the setting of the book. Look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Friends, more than a historical note, this signals the darkness of the story from the very beginning because the days of the judges were some of the darkest days in the history of Israel. In fact, you can flip back just a page or two to the end of the book of Judges to the very last verse and we get a stunning summary of the time Ruth finds Ruth and Naomi find themselves living in. Judges 21-25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Certainly a dark depiction of the days of Ruth, but friends, I feel like we can relate to this as well, can't we? Don't we live in a day when, friends, it feels like there really is no one in charge and everyone's just sort of doing their own thing? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Maybe this holiday season we feel that the state of the world is dark and destructive. We struggle to sing joy to the world because it feels as if the world is falling apart. 
The classic Christmas carol says, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and marks the song and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But unlike the book of Judges, Ruth, this is the first verse and not the last verse. The dark days will not get the last word in this story, and friends, they won't get the last word in your life. But it's going to get a lot worse for them before it gets better. Just as we saw in Exodus, the wilderness always precedes the mountaintop, the cross before the crown. Even worse than the moral and political situation in Israel, the economy was in the tank. And it was worse than $3 gasoline. Look what's going on. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. I don't think we understand famine in 21st century America. We don't truly understand not just no food, but no one has access to food at all. There's nowhere to go. So they pick up and move to another country. Notice the setting begins in the city of Bethlehem. There's moral and literal famine. Bethlehem is, is, is called the city of bread. That's what it means. And in the city of bread, there is no food available. That's kind of ironic, right? So the man and his family takes off to the country of Moab, which has its own unique and dark, more unique spiritual and moral darkness. And we get to meet the man. Look at verse 2. We get introduced to some of the main characters. We see the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem and Judah, or Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, we're going to see a number of ironies as we read through the text. Remember, we're in Bethlehem, the city of bread, and there's nothing to eat. We meet a man named Elimelech, whose name means God is king in the midst of the days when the judges rule and there is no king in Israel. And he's married to a woman named Naomi, whose name means pleasant or delights. The story opens, and there is dark days in Israel, but we get sort of a focus in on a family that at face value appears to be a faithful, godly Hebrew family. Likely in Moab, not because they like Moab, but because of the true desperation of their situation. They find themselves as strangers in a foreign land. And as if that wasn't bad enough, it continues to go downhill from there. From dark days, we turn second to devastating loss. To devastating loss. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives... The name of one was Orpah and the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We get over a decade of the story in three verses, and the family experienced a decade of despair. They're in a foreign land, they're in a famine. 
and Naomi's husband died. Even more dramatic, her two sons end up marrying Moabite women. We'll see more about that in a second. And then both sons die. Naomi is left in a strange land with two foreign daughters-in-law. Verse 5 almost adds insult to injury, the way the ESV translates it. It just calls her the woman. Almost as if her whole identity is taken from her. Her husband, gone. Her sons, gone. Her home, gone. Ten years of decimation in three short verses. From a happy family to three empty seats at the dinner table in just a few short moments, one after another after another. Maybe you can relate to ten years of tragedy. And we get introduced to Orpah and Ruth, two Moabite women who married into a Hebrew family. And this would have been a shocking thing to Israelites in this day. The Moabites were considered accursed people. In fact, the history of Moab goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We looked at this when we journeyed through Genesis. In Genesis chapter 19, Moab, the father of the Moabites, right, he came about from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Not really a good way to be remembered as a people, right? And then throughout the existence of Israel, the Moabites always cause the Israelites problems. They're always luring them into sin and trouble. The Moabites were the enemies of Israel, so much that the book of Deuteronomy would tell us this. Deuteronomy 23.3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And then Moses will go on to recount some of the run-ins with the people of Israel. So see the problem. See the big picture. Naomi is now met with three huge issues. She's living in a foreign land. She's desperate in the midst of famine, and she has lost all of her family except two daughters-in-law who would be considered cursed by the people in her homelands. Friends, the Bible doesn't promise you a pain-free life. In fact, the Bible is incredibly honest about the reality of suffering. Naomi is much like a man named Job a faithful person experiencing unexplainable suffering, what we would call a bad thing happening to a good person. Books like Ruth and Job confront some false assumptions we have about suffering. First, it confronts a common idea that we even have in the church of karma, that if something bad is happening to you, it must be because you somehow deserve it. First of all, friends, if that were true, all of us would be living in a famine in a foreign land right now. But also, friends, while Naomi and her family were certainly not sinless, there doesn't seem to be any indication in the text that they had any sort of major sin issues just continuing to come up in their life. While general, sin, while general suffering is caused by our first parents, Adam and Eve, who sinned and suffering came into the world through them, personal suffering is not always the consequence of personal sin. There are times when things are going to happen in your life and it's not going to be because of something that 
you did. There are people who go around their whole life way down thinking that they lost this person or this happened because they did something and that weight needs to be off of you. Second, it confronts the idea that God would never allow you to suffer. There are people who will come and go, well, God didn't do this. Satan did this. And friends, if that's the case, that's really bad news for you. Because God, friends, is the one who's sovereign over all. You'll hear the TV prosperity preacher tell you, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And he does, but that wonderful plan will never happen without wounds along the way. Burden and blessing come from the hand of the Lord, according to his wise and good counsel. Nothing comes to you except through his nail-scarred hands. And finally, it confronts the idea that our suffering is purposeless. In fact, friends, every single detail of this story, God is weaving together and is going to bring about a glorious, purposeful declaration at the end. God is molding this together. And it may not feel that way to Naomi in the midst of three funerals in 10 years. But God was setting this up to do an incredible work in her life and in the world far beyond her. If this were the end of the book, we would have much to despair. Yet the good news is that God is at work in the midst of a seemingly hopeless situation. What if everything you're consumed with right now is just the first five verses of a bigger story that God is writing? Look at verse 6. I love the then. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Notice Naomi, even when she's had unspeakable tragedy, was still in the fields of Moab trying to get what she could. She didn't just shut down and give up on life. She had to keep pressing on, keep working in the field, keep doing what she could to provide for herself. And Ruth, who was with her and her daughters-in-law, Naomi arises out of the ashes of unspeakable tragedy to a spark of hope. The Lord had visited Israel. The famine appears to be over. Food's available And it's back home in her hometown. She should be able to go there. Two of her three problems could be solved. But what about these daughters-in-law that are with her? What's she going to do about her family, about her Moabite daughters returning back to the land of Israel? Here we get movement three, which is where most of the text spends its time. We see movement three, a dedicated companionship. A dedicated companionship. Look at verse seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Then we get the first example of dialogue in the whole story. Verse eight. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, 
as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they left, and they lifted up their voices and wept. I want us to think about this powerful scene. These women have been through so much together. All three of them became widows in the same 10-year period. I know it's popular to pick on your in-laws, but friends, these people had an incredible sisterhood and life together. They were all each other had. Naomi had lost her husbands and sons. Orpah and Ruth had lost husbands and a father-in-law. These women faced a difficult choice. Go to Bethlehem with Naomi and likely remain widows or stay in Moab where there is a chance. It's the only nation they've ever known and there's a chance they could find a husband and remarry again and have a new life. Naomi is a realist. And just tells them kind of like it is. Because to be a widow in these days was to be without hope. Who was going to take care of them? Who would provide for them? Yet the daughters persisted. Look at verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, I may be, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi pleads again, you need a family. You need to leave and have someone provide for you. Naomi says, I can't give you husbands and I can't give you children. And it was important to recognize in these days, the person who would have cared for a widow would have been the next of kin the closest male family member. If they were married, they'd bring them into their home, or if they were single, they would become an option to marry and to form a family with. It would have been the responsibility of the nearest of kin to care for these members of the family, again, particularly the brothers of the husband, but there was no nearest of kin. And Naomi says, even if I went out and I found a man tonight, we got married in Vegas and I had a kiddo with him. What are you going to do? Wait 18 years for him to grow up? And then what? You're not going to wait for them to become providers. Why wait so long? And Orpah is persuaded. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Ruth persisted. Verse 15, And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone out to your people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death, Parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Wow, these words from Ruth are simply stunning. She clings to Naomi, 
And she commits to be a faithful companion to her wherever the journey leads. She says, I'm going to walk beside you. I'm going to make the God of Israel my God. I'm even going to be buried in your family cemetery. I'm going to be known as a person from Israel and from the line of Naomi. This is a big deal because, friends, remember, Ruth, as a Moabite, had zero chance in most people's minds of finding a husband in Israel. She was much more likely to find a husband in Moab. Yet she clings and commits herself to walk beside Naomi, and Naomi is just left speechless at Ruth's commitment. And on the surface, this probably seems strange to us because we live in such a self-centered world that a commitment like this seems almost impossible. This passage shows the importance of companionship or friendship. In fact, Ruth's name in Hebrew means friendship. And here she's living up to her name. And in our day, we might talk about being friends on Facebook, but we really don't understand friends at all. In fact, I think one of the central things missing for my generation and down is a true understanding of friendship. So much so, there's a new generation of modern so-called scholars who go and they go, there's no way Ruth and Naomi could have this level of commitment. So they'll interpret their relationship as some sort of romantic, queer, homosexual relationship. There's simply no way they could be this committed to people and just be friends. And friends, that reveals a problem for us in our world today because we're more connected than ever, yet we're also more lonely than ever. People couldn't imagine that you'd be committed to somebody without some sort of benefit, right? That the only sort of love is romantic or sexual. And friends, if that's your mindset, you miss out on so much beauty in the world when you miss out on the love of friendship. And this is why many of you, you're lonely, and then you go and you date and you get married, and you wonder why you're still lonely. That's because, friends, your spouse is meant to fill a peace, but you're also meant to have friends. You're also meant to have bros for you to hang out with, fellas, sisters for you to hang out with, ladies. Oh, how our culture has led us astray. Friends, Ruth becomes a ride or die for Naomi. We're in this together. Do you have people who are a ride or die in your life? Who are going to walk with you wherever you go? Do you have friends who you truly love and share an affection and commitment to? Friends that no matter where you move, you can call and pick up wherever you left off. Do you have friends who are willing to sacrifice for you and who you're willing to sacrifice for? Because Ruth teaches us about the importance of having friends like that. True friendship built on love, expressed through sacrifice, people that are willing to lock arms with you and walk through the fire together. And people who are willing to do that because they love us, not because they might get something from us. See the beauty of all of this. God is orchestrating a triumph out of tragedy and showing his hand in a number of ways in Naomi's life. Ruth's going to be far more than a friend. She's going to be used by God to bring about redemption and salvation and blessing to Naomi. But at this moment, she can't even begin to imagine that. 
God is setting the stage. And this brings us to the final movement of this passage. Fourth, the destined timing. From dark days to devastating loss to the dedicated companionship of Ruth and Naomi to the dedicated timing that God would bring about. Naomi would not be alone. She would return to her homeland. She'd return to the house of bread as the famine was ending, and she wouldn't return alone. But friends, this didn't make the journey any easier. Verse 19. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? The whole town is a frenzy. The rumor mill is buzzing. This would never happen in a small town today, would it? Someone come back and you go, did you hear what happened? And who's that with her? Did you hear she's back in town and she's without her husband and she's with the Moabites? What happened to Naomi? Sometimes we think that what's going to solve our biggest problem is going to come with its own issues. People are now gossiping around town about them again. None of us would ever have experienced this here, right? People just whispering when they go in the restaurant. Naomi was back home, but her home was no longer a place she would feel accepted and welcomed. And her response is powerful. Verse 20 she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. You'll probably see in your Bible a note that takes you down to the bottom that says, Naomi's name means pleasant, Mara means bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And I think we can see Naomi's perspectives a little bit clouded in the midst of her suffering. Think about this. She is probably standing next to her daughter-in-law going, yeah, the Lord sent me back with nothing. And she's right there. The Lord sent me back empty. Yet her daughter-in-law has committed to her and is standing right there. Friends, in the midst of suffering, we're often tempted to see blessings as burdens and to lose sight of the good gifts that God has given us and the good things he's doing among us because we get so consumed by what has happened to us. We can lose sight of all the good things God has given us and all the good things he's doing among us because we become so confused by what has happened to us. But I want you also to notice her honesty. In the midst of this, she doesn't doubt God's existence. She doesn't doubt his power. She says, he is the almighty, the El Shaddai. She doesn't doubt his promises. He is Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. In fact, she recognizes that all of this was from God. She makes a similar confession that Job does. He gives and he takes away. But friends, you also know that walking with God doesn't mean you're going to have all the answers. Friends, this helps us understand that questions and doubts are not the enemy of faith, but it's where we direct our questions and our doubts. In fact, friends, faith often means walking forward under the weight of burden 
without all the answers and without knowing exactly where he's taking you, yet still clinging to the Lord in the midst of it. Faith doesn't mean we won't have questions. We might have even been tempted to be angry, but it's also important that we recognize that our perspective is always limited and clouded. Remember, with Naomi, we're getting the divine narrator's perspective on her life. We're getting the thousand-foot view from God's perspective on her life. And friends, we would do well to step back and think, what is God as he's writing my story? What is he thinking? Who is he in the midst of this? We would do well to recognize what Naomi recognized here, that despite her suffering, there is a God who is powerful and who's made promises, who is still there, even if we don't understand how he's going to work it all together for his good and glory. We may not know where the road ends, but we know the one who has the GPS is guiding us where to go. The encouragement from Naomi is, hey, when you can't follow his hand, you can trust his heart. She knows God knows he's powerful, knows he's good. And she says, the Lord is the one who has dealt calamity to me. Yet I know that he hasn't left me. And in fact, unknown to Naomi at the time, God's going to prove to be powerful and a promise keeper as the story unfolds. And the last words of the chapter show us that God has not left her. Verse 22. So Naomi returned... And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. We get sort of an overview of the problem, right? Naomi has returned home without her husband. And we're reminded twice that her daughter-in-law is a Moabite from Moab. Her dearest friend is an enemy in her hometown. She's lost everything she's ever known, but she's returning to Bethlehem at a significant time. The barley harvest is beginning. All hope is not lost. God had not left her. He was leading her by the hand, and God was going to use an unlikely companion to be a blessing, Ruth the Moabites. God doesn't write our story in the way we expect. God doesn't use predictable means like a Hallmark Christmas movie. He uses the most unlikely of sources. Naomi had no idea what was about to happen in her life. And for you, wherever you find yourself, God is working your story together in an unexpected and glorious way. Naomi's following the path of Joseph, the son of Israel, taken from his homeland into Egypt as a famine was beginning, yet Joseph's setback was a set up for a divine comeback. And so let the book of Ruth be an encouragement to you. Maybe you feel left out. Maybe you feel unusable. Maybe you feel cursed by God today. Remember, God doesn't hold your past against you. He offers a new identity and a new future to you through Christ. And let Ruth serve as a reminder of the reason for the season. Because our Savior came in an unlikely way. Born of a virgin girl, 
in a manger with farm animals around in the middle of nowhere. And the baby in the womb, in the manger, was God in the flesh who came here to save us from our sins. Mild he laid his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Because the baby would grow up and leave the manger empty. He'd grow up living a sinless life and dying in our place on the cross. The cross would be left empty when he'd be taken down and buried. And three days later, the grave he would be in would be left empty when he rose up on the third day and ascended into heaven. You want proof that God uses unlikely means for glorious purposes? You want proof that God can bring good out of evil? And you want proof that your suffering isn't purposeless? Look to an empty manger, an empty cross, and an empty tomb. God stands ready to receive you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, but you must come empty-handed by grace alone through faith alone. For all those who are trusting in Jesus, the story of your life will never be that you went away empty, but rather that in the presence of God there is fullness of joy. Let's stand and let's prepare to respond to God together in worship. Father in heaven, you are a God who is writing our stories in ways we could never imagine. But wherever we find ourselves, whatever has happened, whatever we've lost, maybe we find ourselves where Naomi found herself, part of the way in in chapter 1. No family, no famine, or in the midst of a famine in a foreign land. Where is the hope that you were crafting and writing and bringing about a glorious ending for her through the most unlikely means. So today, if we're, trust, if we're struggling to trust you with how you're writing our story, may we place it in an empty manger. May we look to an empty cross, and may we find hope in an empty tomb that you use unlikely means to accomplish your glorious purpose. God, may we look to you and hope and press forward just as Naomi did. Even in the midst of Moab, she was in the field when she heard that the Lord had visited Bethlehem. And may we continue to work in our fields and our families regardless of what we've been through, knowing, Lord, that you have good news of great joy for all people. The Savior has come and brought life everlasting. May this season fill us with joy and hope and believing. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.